3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of 3 a.m. Tales of Terror, where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm Kenny. And on this episode, we are going to be telling you probably a long-awaited story for some of you guys, because I've just been trying to find, like, the right story set to, like, try to put it together. And so I found a book, and so we are reading from a book, so I don't want any, like, I'm going to, the name of the book is The Amityville Horror. It is by Jay Anson, but we're still going to break it down in, like, um, discuss it we'll discuss our views on yeah so this book breaks down each day well each of the days the 28 days uh of the lutzes in the amityville house and their story and everything and so i mean it literally goes from like the time that they bought the house and went to see the house to day 28 and everything that pretty much followed afterwards and this is about the first family that owned it right well, you talk you we talk about a, a little bit of Ronald DeFeo, okay. a little bit about Ronald DeFeo, and then it pretty much goes straight into the Lutz family, which is the main people. So who the lived more in paranormal aspect of Amityville, not the murders. Right. I mean, everybody knows that um, Ronald DeFeo. Um, well, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. We, well, we'll figure it out. It. It talks about it. If you don't know, then we're, when it talks about it, and I, mean, I would hope everybody knows. But so we're actually going to be reading from a book. So uh, I w- I can, if it makes anybody feel better, I will cite the book in the show notes so that yeah, cite it, put the people, link to it, and all that stuff. Yeah, but I, I can put an Amazon link to it. I can cite the book that way. There's no like copyright of me reading this book. Well, and the reason why we're reading it is because it. It's been done a hundred times. This yeah. is the best format that we both prefer and for I, it. Yeah, and I have Googled and Googled and Googled, and nothing that I've Googled has broken down every day in the house like this book does. And that's what I wanted. I want you guys to know what happened every all 28 days in that house. And it's really hard with such a famous story to do it ourselves. It is. To like re... To redo it and not intermingle with how everybody else has talked about it, because, I mean, it's been talked about. So many times. Literally ever. So, And this book might have some stuff in it that you don't know. This book might have some stuff in it that you do know, and that's fine. But that's how we're going to do it. And um, also, this, ep- this because it is a book, and it's not a very short book, um, we're going to have to probably break this up into two parts. I'm hoping... If not possibly three? I'm hoping it's going to be two parts. Uh, if not, we might have to do it in three parts, but I want the Amityville story to be broken down so that you guys get the gist of it. You guys get the, not not the gist of it, the whole, like, experience of it, of what happened in the house. So, uh, yeah, it'll probably be three parts. I don't know, but we're going to do them back to back to back, so don't worry. It's not going to get, like, we're not, you know, we're going to do part one today, so you'll have it on, well, tomorrow is when the, this episode will come out. But you'll have it. And uh, next week we'll do part two. And then if we have to do a third part, we'll do part three the week after. So there will be no, I'm not going to break it up or nothing like that. Mm-hmm. You uh, read the preface? No, I'm not going to read the preface because that is. 
<laughs> the preface is just about the book. It's not like I just love saying preface because I know it bothers because you. Because the it's it's not it's not by Jay Anson. It's by some reverend. I don't know, but I'm gonna read the prologue. So we're just gonna go. So the way that we're gonna do this book, I'm thinking the best way so that you have one. We're not constantly just reading and we're just reading a book to you guys. Is I'll read a chat. I'll read a. I'll read a chapter he will read a chapter then we can discuss i'll read a chapter he'll read a chapter then we discuss yeah, we'll go through our normal me so, well i say our my normal ranting and yeah disproving everything <laughs> and being skeptical and I'm, I'm hoping i'm shooting for this episode to be at least an hour if not a little bit longer and i'm hoping that if we have to you know each episode each part will be an hour each right. so and, you know, if we get down to it and we have, like, two chapters left in part two or three, we're not, we're, it'll just be a little bit longer than an hour. So, It'd be right. whatever. So, we're going to go ahead and get started because I've been talking for five minutes. So, okay. On February 5th, 1976, the 10 o'clock news on New York's Channel 5 announced it was doing a series on people who claimed to have extrasensory powers. The program cut to Steve reporter Steve Bowman investigating an allegedly haunted house in Amityville, Long Island. Bowman said that on November 13, 1974, a large colonial house at 112 Ocean Avenue had been the scene of a mass murder. 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo had taken his had taken a high-powered rifle and methodically shot to death his parents, two brothers, and two sisters. DeFeo had subsequently been sentenced to life imprisonment. And just in case you guys didn't know, he just recently died in 2021. So he uh, he had he literally spent his, the rest of his life in prison because he died in prison in like March of 21, I think is when I looked it up. Professing and claiming. Not his innocence, oh, but... No, I think he did. He... Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, he did it. He he did it, but I think he was just, like, saying that it was the house. It was the house. It was the house. Yeah, the, ho- the, house, and the, and the house and the voices made him do it. But anyway, yep. I'm sure they'll talk about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Two months ago, the report continued. The house was sold for $80,000, by the way. And I will tell you, I think we get into, like, how many rooms and everything this house had for $80,000. So, to a couple named George and Kathleen Lutz. The Lutzes had been aware of the killings, but not been... But not being superstitious, they had felt the house would be perfect for themselves and their three children. They moved in on December 23rd. Shortly thereafter, Bowman said they had become aware that the place was inhabited by some psychic force and that they feared for their lives. They talked of feeling the presence of some energy inside, some unnatural evil that grew stronger each day they remained. Four weeks after they moved in, the Lutzes abandoned the house, taking only a few changes of clothes. At present, they were staying with their with friends in an undisclosed location. But before they left, Channel 5 stated their predicament had became had become known in the area. They had consulted the police and the local priest, as well as a psychic research group. They reportedly told of strange voices seeming to come from within themselves, of a power which actually lifted Mrs. Lutz off her feet toward a closet behind which was a room not noted on any blueprints. Reporter Steve Bowman had heard of the claims. After doing some background research on the house, he discovered that the tragedy had struck nearly every family inhabiting the place, as well as an earlier house built on that same site. 
The Channel 5 announcer went on to say that William Weber, the attorney representing Ronald DeFeo, had commissioned studies hoping to prove that some force influenced the behavior of anyone living at 112 Ocean Avenue. Weber claimed this force, quote, may be of natural origin and felt it might be the evidence he needed to win his client a new trial. On camera, Weber, he's, Weber said he was aware that certain houses could be built or constructed in a certain manner so as to create some sort of electrical currents through some rooms based on the physical structure of the house. Again, the scientists said they are, invest, they are investigating that to rule that out. And after they rule out all reasonable or scientific explanation, then it's going to be referred to referred over to another group at Duke University who will delve into the psychic aspects of the case. The report concluded by saying that the Catholic Church was also involved. Channel 5 stated that two emissaries from the Vatican had arrived in Amityville in December and were reported to have told the Lutzes to leave their home immediately. Now the Church's Council of Miracles is studying the case, and its report is that indeed 112 Ocean Avenue is possessed of some spirits beyond current human knowledge. Two weeks after the telecast, George and Kathy Lutz held a press conference in a tourney, in a tourney, in, 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 <laughs> like, in attorney William Weber's office. The DeFeo lawyer had met the couple three weeks before through mutual friends. George Lutz stated to reporters that he would not spend another night in that house, but he was not planning to sell 112 Ocean Avenue just then. He was also awaiting the results of some scientific tests to be conducted by parapsychologists and other sensitive professional researchers of occult phenomena. Phenomena. <laughs> At that point in time, the Lutzes cut off all communication with the media, feeling that too much was being overstated and exaggerated. It is only now that their whole story is being told. Also, I didn't know that Duke University was ever involved in this case. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't either. Yeah, did not know that at all. Should have been Carolina. What? It should have been Carolina. No. <laughs> oh, you mean no. All right, now we're getting into the chapter one. December 18th, 1975. George and Kathy Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue on December 18th, 1975. 28 days later, they fled in terror. George Lee Lutz, 28, of Deer Park, Long Island, had a pretty good idea of land and home values. The owner of a land surveying company, William H. Perry, Incorporated, he proudly let everyone know that the business was a third-generation operation, his grandfather's, his father's, and now his. Between July and November, he and his wife, Kathleen, 30 years of age, had looked at over 50 homes on the island's south shore before deciding to investigate Amityville. None in the thirty to $50,000 range had yet met their requirements. Well, no shit. That the house must be on the water, and it must be one to which they could move George's business. In the course of their search, George called the Conklin Re Realty Office in Massapeka Park and spoke to broker Edith Evans. She said that she had a new house that she wanted to show them, and that she could take them through the place between 3 and 3.30. George made the appointment, and the broker, an attractive, warm woman, took them there at three in the afternoon. She was very pleasant and patient with the young couple. I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, she told George and Kathy, but I wanted to show you how the other half of Amityville lives. The house at 112 Ocean Avenue is a big, rambling, three-story affair with dark shingles and white trim. The lot 
which it stands is 50 by 237 to 50 feet facing the front so that you could look at the house from across the street. The entrance door is down the right side. With the property comes 30 feet of wooden bulkhead that stands against the Amityville River. On a lamppost at the end of the paved driveway is a small sign bearing the name given to the house by a previous owner. It reads, High Hopes. Gonna have high, high hopes in the kitchen. I don't understand why I cannot have the chicken. What's Eli's theme song? (laughs) (laughs) An enclosed porch with wet bar looks out at a preferred older residential community of other big homes. Evergreens grow around the narrow grounds, partly blocking off the neighbors on either side, but their drawn shades can be seen easily enough. When he looked around, George thought that was peculiar. He noticed the neighbor's shades were all drawn on the side that faced his house, but not in the front or in any direction of the house on the other side. The house had been on the market for almost a year. It was not in the paper, but was fully described in Edith Evans' agency listing. She listed it as follows. Exclusive Amityville area. A six-bedroom, Dutch colonial, spacious living room, formal dining room, enclosed porch, three-and-a-half baths, a finished basement, a two-car garage, a a heated swimming pool, and a large boathouse, asking only $80,000. Because that's not suspicious at all. If I ever saw a house with a six-bedroom house, nonetheless, six six bedrooms, three and a half baths, and it was $80,000, my first question is, what the fuck is wrong with it? (laughs) But the thing is, is I don't think anything was wrong with this house. Well, I mean, there was a lot of things wrong with it. I know, but I'm saying, like, like, uh, structure-wise, I don't think anything was wrong with this house. Well, what it is is because when... When a crime happens in a house, you te- you legally have to list it? Yes. No. Uh, not if it's a non-disclosure state, and I don't know if New York is or not. Really? Yeah, you do know. Well. I know down here you have to. Oh, I don't know. I, I See, I don't know about murders, but if it's like a, if it's a non-disclosure state, from what I understand, you don't have to unless somebody asks you. And I don't know if New York is a non-disclosure state well, or not. Well, for 80 grand for a six-bedroom house, I'd be like, hey, who died here? Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'd have questions, too. <laughs> who died? Old lady? All right, we're still buying it. We're good. Right. <laughs> It'll be all right. Oh, a guy killed his entire family with a rifle and then walked to a bar? Oh, maybe. maybe yeah. Not. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but, yeah, no. So, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it... She didn't list in the, her listing did not say anything about it. So I don't know if. Well, she probably assumed everybody knew. That too. Because it was a big thing and Ronald DeFeo is in, well, was in prison. Right. So I think it was pretty well known what was going on. Well, also, from what I also understand is, so 112 Ocean Avenue is the physical address of the house, but I know for a very long time, which it didn't really throw people off that much, they changed the address. It was like 109 or 108 Ocean Avenue, but people knew what the house was. Everybody knows the High Hopes house. Well, everybody knows what the house looks like, too, so it didn't really throw people off. They tried to do it to, like, keep people from, like, going there and stuff, and you're like, you changed the number to, like, three doors down. Like, come on. (laughs) Three doors down. Stop. Keep going. (laughs) I'm sorry. $80,000 for a house described that in the listing, it would have been falling apart. Or the typist could have left out a one before the eight. Yep. 
One might think she'd want to show a suspect bargain after dark and from the outside only, but she was glad to show them the inside. The Lutz's examination was pleasant, swift but thorough. Not only did it meet what their exact requirements and desires were, but contrary to their anticipations, the houses and other buildings on the property were in fine condition. Told you. I don't think anything was wrong with the house. No, like, I think physically. the neighborhood was like almost perfect. Yeah, it was like it's supposed to be just like <clears throat> a quaint little. Without hesitation, the broker then told the couple it was the DeFeo house. Everyone in the country, it seems, had heard about the tragedy. The 23-year-old Ron DeFeo killing his father, his mother, two brothers, and two sisters in their sleep on the night of November 13, 1974. Newspaper and television accounts had told of the police discovering the six bodies all shot by a high-powered rifle. All, as the Lutz learned months later, were lying in the same position, on their stomachs with their heads resting on their arms. Confronted with this massacre, Ronald had finally confessed... It just started, it went so fast, I just couldn't stop. During his trial, his court-appointed attorney, William Weber, pleaded for his insanity. For months before the incident, the young man testified, I heard voices. Whenever I looked around, there was no one there, so it must have been God talking to me. Ronald DeFeo was convicted of murder and sentenced to six consecutive life terms, which would be one life term for each person. Right. I wonder if I should have told you which house this was before or after you saw it, the broker mused. I'd like to know for my future reference with clients looking for a house in the $90,000 range. So this book also has like uh, pictures of like the layout of the house on each floor. So I'll see if I can find these online and post them so that you guys can also see it too. It's literally yeah, like... It's a really narrow house. Yeah. it's uh, But it's got like the blueprints of each floor. Like it has like the ground floor, the second floor, so, and the third floor, and the attic. And so stuff. on the first floor, you have a covered porch. You then walk into a very large looking living room with a fireplace. Windows are on the left and right side. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. The front door's on the left side. As you walk in, there's a like a foyer or a hallway with mm-hmm. a small closet that goes into the kitchen with a breakfast nook. Mm-hmm. Then you have a dining room, and then you have the front door where the closet is for the foyers and probably a bench, and then a staircase leading up to the next floor. No, I see. It's it's not on the side. This is how the house looks from the street. No, because the the lot's so narrow, the front door is actually on the left side of the house, or on the right side of the house. Oh. Because okay. you got to think the lot's 57 feet. Yeah, that's not 57 feet. Okay. No. So then when you get to the second floor, there's your master bedroom. There's a dressing room. It's kind of weird. Whatever that is. Probably more like Probably a just a area. big closet, too. Then you have a sewing room and Missy's room. There's a bathroom there. There's Well, there's two bathrooms. There's one in the hallway, probably for the for Missy's room. The master bedroom's up there. And it has its own. And then the spiral stair, the, uh, I don't want to say a spiral staircase, but it's like. It's a, in like it's, an L shape. Yeah, it's like, like a cascading a, yeah. staircase that keeps going up. Mm-hmm. Then when you get to the third floor slash the attic. You have Danny and Chris's room, which has some really weird partitions in it, probably because it's a Dutch style, so the the eaves on it should drop down. And it has a gigantic playroom, which I don't understand. Why wouldn't they give Danny and Chris... It looks like the playroom is bigger than the bedroom. No, it's the same size. It looks okay. like it's cut in half. It looks like it's bigger. <laughs> it might be, because you have the... Uh, uh, fireplace cutting into their room. Mm-mm-mm. And then you have the storage space on the right side for the eave, the storage space on the left side for the eave. It's a huge house. I mean, yeah. Three floors, too. Oh, God. That's With a basement. Way too much to clean. And a two-car garage. 
The two-car garage I'd be fine with. Well, you don't have to worry about cleaning it. The demons will do it for you. Stop it. Satan. Keep going. <laughs> Clearly, she didn't feel the Lutzes would be interested in such an affluent property. But Kathy took one final look about the house, smiled happily, and said, It's the best we've seen. It's got everything we ever wanted. Obviously, she had never hoped to live in such a fine house. But George vowed to himself that if there was a way... This was the place he wanted his wife to have. The tragic history of 112 Ocean Ave didn't matter to George, Kathy, or their three children. This was still the home they had always wanted. Crazy. But then again, it's 1975. And they probably, I don't think they had a lot of money. No, 80 grand for a house like that's a lot of money. But I'm saying, but their price range was 30 to 50,000. Yeah, but with inflation, that's probably closer to like two or three now. No, I'm, I know, but I'm saying like back then, their their original price range was thirty to fifty thousand dollars. So they were looking for a house from thirty to fifty thousand dollars, like this one. So I think they were. Because, they were probably they were probably upper middle class. Yeah, I don't know. They were probably upper middle class for sure. Probably. And you can definitely tell they're white. I mean, yeah. We ain't scared. Oh my god! There's a good deal in this house. I don't care if six people died in this motherfucker. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be all right. The stains will come right out. They were all killed on their beds. The beds are gone. It's not a big deal. Oh, my God. God bless. Like that house in Kernersville. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw <laughs> House. There's a house in Kernersville off Union Cross Road. Oh, they know. Oh, have you talked about it yes. before? Okay. God bless, man. That thing. You just drive by it and you're like, Ugh. There's nothing in the yard. There's no trees. Well, there's like one tree. And it's so... That's where all the people got hung from. I know. <laughs> It's so like it, the freaking conjuring. It if it had it reminds me of like almost like maybe the size of Amityville. I don't know if it's yeah, three it's stories. About that big. I don't no, know. It's, it's two stories. It, it looks like stories. it's on a crawl. But if it had like the you know like the round arches that Amityville has, that Dutch style. Yeah, I, it would definitely be then. Yeah, this house is more colonial, like the um, Texas Chainsaw House. Yes, but not as big. No, not at, like it's not like a plantation house or anything like that. I think that's what the one in. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. Yeah. All right. During the remainder of November and the early weeks of December, the Lutzes spent their evenings laying out plans for minor modifications to be made in the new house. George's surveying experience enabled him to rough out suitable layouts for the changes. He and Kathy decided one of the bedrooms on the third floor would be their two boys, Christopher, age seven, and Daniel, nine. Oh, so those were the actual drawings that he drew. Yeah. Oh. I guess. Yeah, because it says Chris and, yeah, and Missy, Missy's room. Okay, so those were his floor plans that he drew. Yeah, unless it was somebody else who was like. Well, if he's a surveyor, then he probably has some type of architectural experience. So then, yeah, it probably was his blueprints. Uh, Christopher, age seven, and Daniel, nine. The other upstairs bedroom they gave to their children as a playroom. Melissa, or Missy as they called her, the five-year-old girl, would sleep on the second floor across the hall from the master bedroom. There would also be a sewing room and a big dressing room for George and Kathy on the same floor. So really, it's like a six-bedroom, and they just started making it different things. Mm -hmm. And they wanted their boys to live in the freaking attic because they're crazy. She wanted a sewing room and a dressing room. Chris, Danny, and Missy were well pleased with their room assignments. Downstairs on the main floor, the Lutzes had a slight problem. They didn't own any dining room furniture. They finally decided that before closing, George would tell the broker they'd like to purchase the dining room set left in storage by the DeFeos, along with a girl's bedroom set for Missy. 
a TV chair, and Ronald DeFeo's bedroom furniture. These things and other furnishings left in the house, like the DeFeo's bed, were not included in the purchase price. George paid out an additional $400 for the items. So they he wanted to buy the bedroom set. I'm telling set. you, I don't think they had a lot of money. But it doesn't matter. There was people killed on those pieces of furniture. You don't buy that. He didn't. They didn't have a Dude, lot of legally, money. Legally, they shouldn't be able to sell shit like that. I mean, I mean granted, it's the 70s. You're right, but, but he requested it. He's a moron. Well, we know that. That's why the state has to step in for people like this. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, man, wouldn't recommend it. There's going to be a bullet hole right where the pillow is. I know. Stop. Just letting you know. I don't know. He also got for free seven air conditioners, two washers, two dryers, and a new refrigerator and freezer. There was a lot to be accomplished before moving day. In addition to the physical move of all their belongings, there were complicated legal questions relative to the transfer of the title that required sifting and sorting out. The title to the house and property was recorded in the names of Ronald DeFeo's parents. It seemed Ronald, as the sole survivor, was entitled to inherit his parents' estate, regardless of the fact that he'd been convicted of murder. Oh, what? I mean, technically... None of the assets in the estate could be disposed of before being legally settled in probate court. It was a difficult legal maze that the executors had to travel, and more time was still needed to provide the proper legal administration of any transactions relative to the house or property. The Lutzes were advised that provisions could be devised to protect the legal interest of all concerned if the sale of the house was consummated, but to arrive at the proper procedure to accomplish this could take weeks or longer. Eventually, it was resolved for the closing. $40,000 was to put into escrow for the mortgage until a legal deed could be completed and executed. The closing date was set for the morning George and Kathy planned to move from Deer Park. They had arranged to close on the sale of their old house the day before, confident that everything would work out, and probably influenced by their anxiety to get settled in their new home. The couple decided to try and get everything done on the same day. Well, there's there's where you went wrong. I feel that spiritually, though. <laughs> Did the same thing at our house. <laughs> Packing was to be mainly Kathy's job. To keep the children out of her hair and away from George, she assigned them minor projects. They would gather their own toys and arrange their clothing for packaging. When the chores were completed, they were to start cleaning their rooms to make their old house presentable for the scrutiny of new owners. George planned to close his office in Syoset, Syoset, S-Y-O-S-S-E-T, and move into the new house to save on the real on the rent money. He had included this item in his original estimate of how he and Kathy could afford an $80,000 house. Now he figured that the basement, a well-finished layout, might be the best place. Moving his equipment and furnishings would be time-consuming enough, and if the basement was to be the location of the new office, some carpentry would be needed. The 45-by-22-foot boathouse out behind the house and garage was not there just to be ostentatious and an unused decoration for the Lutzes. George owned a 25-foot cabin cruiser and a 15-foot speedboat, upper-middle class if not lower-high-class. Oh my gosh. The facilities at his new house would again save him a lot of money he normally has been paying to a marina. The task of getting his vessels to Amityville with a trailer became an obsession with him, despite the priorities that he and Kathy were constantly discovering. There was work to be done at 112 Ocean Ave, both inside and outside. 
Although he wasn't sure where the time was going to come from, George planned to attend some of the landscaping in the garden to prevent frost damage. Maybe, but framed burlap around the shrubs, put in bulbs, and after that, spread some lime on the lawn. Handy with his tools and equipment, George made good progress on many interior projects. Now and then, pressed for time, he got his hopeful projects confused with his musts. He soon dropped everything to clean the chimney, then the fireplace. After all, Christmas is coming up. It was quite cold on the actual moving day. The family had packed the night before and slept on the floor. George was up early and single-handedly piled the first load into the biggest U-Haul trailer he could rent, finishing in barely enough time to clean up and get to the closing with Kathy. At the legal ritual, the attorneys used up more than their usually allotted here-tos, whereases, and parties of, and dealt each other long sheets of typewritten letters. The Lutz's lawyer explained that because of the impediments on the house, they did not have a clear title to the property, though they'd have the best that could be fashioned for their mortgage. But remarkably, the closing was all over a few minutes past noon. As they rushed from the office, their lawyers assured them they would have no problem and eventually would get proper ownership papers. At 1 o'clock, George rode up into the driveway of 112 Ocean Ave. With the trailer crowded with their belongings and the DeFeo's refrigerator, washer, dryer, and freezer that had been in storage, Kathy followed with the children and the family van with their motorcycle in the back, yes, Upper middle class, lower high class. Okay. Two boats, a motorcycle, and a giant house on a lake. And clothing were taken from the truck into the patio at the rear of the house and into the garage. Then George walked to the front door, fumbling in his pockets as he went, searching for the key to the door. Irritated, he returned to the truck and thoroughly searched it before admitting to his assistant that he didn't have it. The broker was the only one with the key, and she had taken it with her as she left the closing. George called her and she went back to her office to fetch it. When the side door was finally opened, the three children leaped from the van, made right for their respective toys, and began a parade of unprofessional movers in and out of the house. Kathy designated the destinations of each parcel. It took time to maneuver furniture up the fairly narrow stairwell leading to the second and third floors, and by the time Father Mancuso arrived to bless this house, it was well after 1.30 p.m. Okay, so that <laughs> well, one thirty p.m. That's still not. So that's just one day. Yeah. So this might be multiple parter. Yeah, we might have to make this like a four part. So I'm gonna read the next part, and it is still December eighteenth, nineteen seventy five. Father Frank Mancuso is not only a cleric. In addition to properly attending to his priestly duties, he handles clients in family counseling for his diocese. That morning, Father Mancuso had woken up feeling uneasy. Something was bothering him. He couldn't put his finger on it because he really didn't have any particular worries. In his own words, looking back, he can only explain it as a quote-unquote bad feeling. All that morning, the priest moved around his apartment in the Long Island rectory in a daze. Today is Thursday, he thought to himself. I've got a lunch date in Lindenhurst. Then I must go and bless the Lutz's new home and be at my mother's for dinner. Father Mancuso had met George Lee Lutz two years earlier. Even though George was a Methodist, he had helped Kathy and George in the days before they were married. The three children were Kathy's from a previous marriage. Did not know that. And as a priest to Catholic children, Father Mancuso felt a personal need to look after their interest. The young couple had often asked the friendly cleric 
with the neatly trimmed beard to come for lunch or dinner at their home in Deer Park. Somehow, that anticipated meeting had never come off. Now, George had a very special reason to invite him anew. Would he come to Amityville to bless their new house? Father Mancuso said he'd be there on December 18th. On that same day, he agreed to come to George's house. He also made a date to lunch with four old friends in Lindenhurst, Long Island. He, his very first parish had been there. Now, he was very well regarded in the diocese with his own quarters at the rectory in Long Island. Understandably, he was always busy and held to a hectic schedule, so he could not be blamed for trying to kill two birds with one stone, since Lindenhurst and Amityville were but a few miles apart. The cleric could not shake the bad feeling that persisted even though the pleasant luncheon with his four old acquaintances. However, he kept stalling his leaving for Amityville, pushing ahead the time to go. His friends asked where he was off to, to Amityville. Where in Amityville? It's a young couple in their 30s with three children. They live on, Father Mancuso referred to a slip of paper, 112 Ocean Avenue. That's the DeFeo house, one of his friends said. No, their name is Lutz, George and Kathleen Lutz. Don't you remember the DeFeos, Frank? asked one of the men at the table. Last year, the son killed his whole family. His father, mother, four brothers and sisters. Terrible, terrible thing. It was a big story in all the papers. The priest tried to think back. He seldom read the news when he picked up the paper, only looking for special only looking for items of special interest. No, I don't really seem to recall it. Of the four men at the table, three were priests, and they somehow didn't like the idea. The consensus was that he shouldn't go. I must. I promised them I've come. As Father Mancuso drove the few miles to Amityville, he felt apprehensive. It wasn't the fact that he would be visiting the DeFeo house, he was sure, but something else. It was past 1.30 when he arrived. The Lutz's driveway was so cluttered that he had to park his old tan Ford on the street. It was an enormous house, he noted, good for Kathy and the children, and that her husband had been able to provide such a fine home. The priest removed his clerical articles from the car, put on his stole, took the holy water, and entered the house to begin his ritual of blessing. When he flicked the first holy water and uttered the words that came and uttered the words that accompany the gesture, Father Mancuso heard a masculine voice say with a terrible clarity, Get out. He looked up in shock and whirled about. His eyes widened in astonishment. The command had come directly from behind him, but he was alone in the room. Who or whatever had spoken was nowhere to be seen. When he finished his ritual of blessing, the priest didn't mention the incident to the Lutzes. They thanked him for his kindness and asked him to stay for supper, such as it would be the first night. He politely refused, explaining that he planned to have dinner with his mother at her house in Nassau. She would be waiting for him. It was getting late, and he still had a bit of a drive. Kathy really wanted to thank Father Mancuso for his contribution to the occasion. George asked if he would accept a gift of money or a bottle of Canadian Club, but he quickly refused, saying he couldn't accept gratuities from a friend. I don't think priests can do that. Can they? What, take gifts? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like, I, well, I didn't know they could take money like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you do it for, like, weddings and stuff like that. You can always give oh. gifts. It's like a thank you kind of thing. Once in his car, Father Mancuso rolled down his window. Repeated thanks and well wishes and well wishes were exchanged. But as he spoke to the couple, his expression turned serious. By the way, George, I had lunch with some friends over in Lindenhurst before coming here. They told me that this was the DeFeo home. Did you know that? 
oh, sure, I think that's why it's such a bargain. I, it was on the market for a long time, but that doesn't bother us at all. It's got, best, it's got the best of everything. Wasn't that a tragedy, Father? said Kathy. That poor family, imagine all six murdered in their sleep. The priest nodded. Then, with repeated goodbyes from the three children, the family watched as he drove off to Queens. It was nearly four when George had completed the first unloading at 112 Ocean Avenue. He drove, through, he drove the U-Haul back to Deer Park and into his old driveway. As he opened up the door to his garage, Harry, his dog, leaped out and would have made a getaway if he hadn't been snared by his head. The fast and sturdy half-Malamute, half half-Labrador half retriever had been left behind to guard the rest of the family's belongings. Now George took him into the truck with him. As Father Mancuso rode towards his mother's, he tried to rationalize what had happened to him in the Lutz's house. Who or what would say such a thing to him? After all his experiences in counseling, now and again in his sessions, he encountered clients who reported hearing voices, a symptom of psychosis. But Father Mancuso was convinced of his own stability. His mother greeted him at the door, then frowned. What's the matter with you, Frank? Don't you feel well? The priest shook his head. No, not too terribly. Go in the bathroom and look at your face. Looking at his reflection in the mirror, he saw two large black circles under his eyes that were so dark he thought they must be smears of dirt. He tried to wash them off with soap and water, but it didn't help. Back in Amityville, George took Harry to the dog compound next to the garage and chained him with a 20-foot steel lead. Now that it was after six, George was almost exhausted and decided to leave the rest of his possessions in the truck even though they were it was costing him $50 a day to rent the vehicle. He worked inside, placing most of the living room furniture in their approximate positions. Father Mancuso left his mother's home after eight, heading back to the rectory. On the Van Wick Expressway in Queens, he found his car was literally being forced onto the right shoulder. He looked around quickly. There was no other vehicle within 50 feet of him. Shortly after driving back onto the highway and continuing on his way, the hood suddenly flew open, smashing back against the windshield. I've had that happen to me before. Oops. What's up with women doing tragic things to their <laughs> vehicles and then going, oopsie? <laughs> your hood, your windshield. Yeah. Your mirror. Oh, listen. <laughs> Whoopsie. We don't want to talk about that. Mailbox <laughs> came out of nowhere. <laughs> One of the welded hinges tore loose. The right door flew open. Frantically, Father Mancuso tried to break the car. Then it stalled by itself. Shaken, he finally got to the telephone and reached another priest who lived near the expressway. Fortunately, the other cleric was able to drive Father Mancuso to a garage where he hired a tow truck to bring in the disabled car. Back on the expressway, the mechanic could not get the Ford to start. Father Mancuso decided to leave the vehicle at the garage and have his friend drive him on the Sacred Heart Rectory. Coming to almost the very end of his strength, George decided to complete the day's labor with something more pleasurable for himself. He'd rig up his stereo with the hi-fi equipment that the DeFeos had built into the living room. Oh my God. They're still it's used. tight. Oh my God. Uh, then he and Kathy would have music to add to the joy of their first night in their new home. He'd barely begun the job when Hen when Harry began an awful howling outside. Danny came rushing into the house, yelling that Harry was in trouble. George ran out to the back fence to find the poor animal strangling. He had tried to jump over the fence and was now choking on his chain, which had looped across the top bar. 
George freed Harry, shortened the lead so that the dog couldn't try it again, and returned to installing the stereo. After an hour, he was back in his quarters. Father Mancuso's telephone rang. It was the priest who had helped him out earlier. Do you know what happened to me after I dropped you off? Father Mancuso was almost afraid to ask. The windshield wipers, they began to fly back and forth like crazy. I couldn't stop them. I never turned them on, Frank. What the hell is going on? By 11 o'clock that night, the Lutzes were ready to settle down for their first night in the new home. It had gotten colder outside, down to almost 6 degrees above zero. Fahrenheit. Yeah. George George burned some now-empty cardboard cartons in the fireplace, making a merry blaze. It was the 18th of December, 1975, the first of their 28 days. So. Yes. Normally... Only demonic spirits can latch onto a person and leave an area. Right. Or, I think, what is it? Some people believe that if you are touched or unsainted by a demon, you could have, like, a mark on you. Right. And you can take it with you for a couple of days. Right. Do you think that's, like, the black eyes? I think that's what it was. I think it's more of, like, I wouldn't say a succubus, but, you know, it's draining. Mm -hmm. And he was, he already woke up and he was like, man, this is kind of weird, you know, and... That was his instinct saying, you know, you've got a bad feeling. Yeah, but he but he made the promise to him, and he's a priest. He can't go back on that. And he showed up, and the, whether you believe it or not, if the, the demon in the Amityville house was probably trying to make him very, very uncomfortable to leave and saying, get out, because, you know, he's Catholic. Mm-hmm. He's probably blessing the house. He might be doing it in Latin. He might be doing it in English, probably more so English. Mm-hmm. But with the holy water and everything, when you hear a voice say, get out, that's never a good sign. And especially the fact that it left with him. Yeah. I think Father Mancuso is a very big part of the story anyways. Yeah, because he keeps going back and helping them, I mm-hmm. think. And that's you know foreshadowing for the But future. I think also he feels drawn to the house after this, which means something is attached to him from this house. Well, and because he was touched by it, it messed his car up. Mm-hmm. And then it messed the other priest that, priest he, had that he had come pick him up. Mm-hmm. Not as bad because, again, he was only in the car for a little bit. And plus the power had gone, you know, the power of the evil that he was touched by mm-hmm. had gone down. Right. And he was probably being protected by, again, if you believe in these things, because he is a priest. Mm-hmm. He's and, saved. And... And, and all that stuff. He was probably being protected by his faith. Mm-hmm. And that's why he didn't even realize his eyes were sunken in and exhausted. And mm-hmm. he didn't even realize it because he wasn't tired. He was just right. sunken in would be the best way to describe him. Right. So... It's it, So we need to do a little precursor for everybody with the DeFeos and why it's such a weird thing with what Ron did. Yeah. Or was controlled to do. So with these houses being so close to each other, the weird paranormal aspect of the Amityville murders with the DeFeos was they had weird stuff happen. Mm-hmm. You know, your typical, just like what's going to happen to these people, super weird stuff. But what doesn't make any sense and what they can't, And what nobody could explain about the house was the fact that, so, three-story house, we know that. Mm -hmm. It's in a close-knit neighborhood. Right. So, a high-powered rifle. I forget what it was. I think it was like a 30-06, something like that. Uh, Yeah, I can look it up. Um, Why do you keep talking? Nonetheless, any rifle is going to make a big bang. 
No, that's the whole. No, that was the point because it it was a rifle that should have been heard. Right. That's the whole thing. Especially with how close they are. And and let's take the neighbors out of out of context for that. The people in the house. So they did toxicology. Mm-hmm. They found no drugs in their systems. Mm-hmm. He used a Action Marlin three three six C rifle. Do you know what that is? So a three thirty six Marlin. Okay. Yes. Yes, that makes a big boom. That's like a, <laughs> that's like a deer rifle. Oh, okay. So like a like literally shotgun. No, 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 no. Uh, like a bolt action rifle. Mm, okay. Um, I think that's what a three thirty six is. Don't quote. I don't know Marlin's that good. I'm more of a Henry guy myself. Yeah, it's a thirty thirty. Okay, I was right then. Okay. So it is a thirty thirty. Three thirty six is the model. So it was a thirty thirty. Okay. Big boom. Right. So he shot his parents who were sleeping next to each other. Mm-hmm. Bam bam. Yep. Neither of them woke up. Now, when this happens with how small this house is and how big of a concussion that is, and I know I don't know if any of our viewers have ever heard a gunshot go off in a house. It I is haven't. so absurdly loud and it rings and it bounces. It's ten times louder than it is outside because you're getting all that reverberation coming back to yes. you. He then walked upstairs to each one of the other bedrooms and shot everybody else and nobody woke up. They were all in the same position and they were not moved because his testimony is But see, I thought that the last one of the la- one of the last people that he shot, one of his sisters or whatever, I thought she did wake up. She did when she realized what was happening. He he said that her head moved. Right. But she had her. She was face down on her belly. Mm-hmm. Had her arms crossed, and she looked at him, and he went, "Pam." That's what he said in one of his okay. one of his very many testimonies. Okay. He then walked to a bar. Yeah. Covered in blood. Yeah. And all messed up. Got a drink. Got a drink, and everybody's like, "Hey, man, are you okay? What happened?" And I think he told. He them. told him. I think I just killed my entire family. Yeah. And, you know, they had just heard, nobody heard gunshots. Everybody's like, no, nah, he would have heard you kill your whole family, you know, whatever. Yeah. Cops came, picked him up. They thought he was just crazy or hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, he pretty much and they, he was. he was like, well, just bring me, let's take me home. They drive him home. They walk in the house and they're like, oh my God, it smells like gunshot residue. It smells like uh, black powder, you know, mm-hmm. gunshot residue. Yep. They go upstairs and everybody's dead. They arrest him on spot. Mm-hmm. And... He said he couldn't have been happier to leave that house. Wow. So that's the backstory of Ron DeFeo. Right. And what he did. And he did not plead his innocence. He knew he did it. Mm-hmm. But it was not his fault because he said that the voices that he heard... Were coming from the house. Were coming from the house where he believed, well, he believed it was God. Right. And that God wanted him to do this. He, he didn't know. But it's not God, obviously. Um, and that... They would make the pain go away and the voices would go away if he did this. Mm-hmm. That was the whole, it was a, hey, if you kill your entire family, we'll stop messing with you. Well, that's pretty much what like he was saying. And I think that's also what Le- George Lutz was saying over and over again. I mean, we probably will get into it more. But like there was voices kept telling him and I think Ronald DeFeo, kill your family, kill your family, and we'll, we'll kill leave you them, alone. kill them, yep. make it stop kill them like it was something like that i don't know yeah well and it was it was a bargaining of if you kill your entire family and you do this for we'll help you let us in we'll help you do it and mm-hmm. then we'll leave you alone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then he did it and then you know but nobody right. can ever explain how everybody died from gsw's gunshot wounds mm-hmm. 
None of the neighbors heard it. Nope. None of the people in the house heard it. Nope. Nobody heard it. You can hear a thirty out six hundreds and of I'm pretty sure that away. they did testing to see the house was not soundproof no it, there's no way it was insulated enough no even a zero insulated house if you have a window or a doorway and a gun goes off you gonna hear it especially with how close the houses are right to that and they're asking the neighbors and they're like no we never heard anything and I don't think any of them heard saw flashes of light not that they were really looking but mm-hmm. I mean if you don't see the muzzle flash, mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of weird, too, so, you know. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, and they, they still can't explain it to this day because he didn't have a suppressor. Even if he did, you still would have heard it. Yeah, exactly. Because that suppressors don't work like they do in movies where they go pew-pew. Mm-hmm. They are, they bring it down a couple levels, but it's still very loud, especially a thirty out 6 lever action. Plus, you would have heard the gun being cocked every single right. time. Right, which he had to do every single every time. Every single time, because it was bam, and then you had to push the lever forward, eject the shell, push the hammer back and re-cock it, and then pull it shut. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think... It's loud. I don't think that that... Does, did it hold six shells? Or did he have to reload it after every, like, two? If it's like, a 30 it probably holds six or eight. Okay. It, it 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 probably holds six or eight. I'm not sure with Marlin 336s. Hold on, stand by. I can Google it. So side note, I a while ago I had went through this book and broke it down into how many parts that we were originally going to do this book in. Six plus one. If you chamber one, the feed tube holds six. Okay, so um, I had broken it down into four parts. So we may have to make this a four part. Uh, story and so today though i think i, I want to try and get to christmas like go through and get through the 25th so now we're at december 19th and th- this chapter goes through the 19th through the 21st yes. so december 19th to the 21st george sat up in bed wide awake he had heard a knock on his front door he looked around in the darkness for a moment he didn't know where he was but then it came to him he was in the master bedroom of his new home Kathy was there beside him, hunched down under the warm covers. The knock came again. Jesus, who's that? he muttered. George reached for his wristwatch on the night table, and it was 3.15 in the morning, which, for people that don't know, is the witching hour mm-hmm. in the world. And the witching hour, allegedly, is the only time during the day where no church, no mass, and no religious ceremonies are held mm-hmm. throughout the entire world. Right. That's why we're called 3 a.m. Tales of Terror. <laughs> so that's the, if you ever wake up at 3 o'clock, it's because some paranormal shit's happening. So welcome to ruin your entire night because that's what happens when I wake up at 3 o'clock. I'm like, oh no. Well, that's because this house is haunted. That's because you see children in corners. So, that was in Kernersville. <laughs> that was in Kernersville. That's not this house. So sidebar. She wakes up in the middle of the night, rolls over, looks me dead in the eyes, and goes, <laughs> there's a child standing in the corner. My eyes go super wide. Grab the gun, sweep the house. Sweeping the house <laughs> at naturally 3 o'clock in the morning. Maybe I was having a bad dream. Sweeping the house, turning the lights on, and she wakes up all pissed off. What are you doing? Who the fuck says that? Who says there is a child standing in the corner? I was pissed that I got woken up. <laughs> so I'm sweeping this house at 3 a.m., trying to because one it's the witching hour my wife just turned over and said there's a child in the corner now i can't sleep and we had heard noises i think there was something in that house even though 
I did have it blessed and everything. Might not have been a bad spirit, but hey, whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm sweeping the house, and she gets pissed off. And I told her, I said, don't you ever do this shit to me ever again. He's so mad at me, and he woke me up. I wasn't awake. He woke me up. I'm turning up. the lights on. Yeah. He woke me up, and I'm like, what? what are you doing? What time is it? And then I get yelled at for something I didn't even know I did. Like, Who says that? I obviously was having a bad dream. Obviously, there was a child in the corner in my dream. Sketchy. I had a bad dream last night, too. I think it's my medicine. Though I didn't take my medicine last night. I knocked the fuck out last night. You're just messed so up. Wow, okay. Yeah, so that's the sidebar. So don't ever fucking do that. So I understand him going, huh, this is really interesting. <laughs> so again, a loud rapping. Only this time, it didn't sound as if it was coming from downstairs. More from somewhere off to his left. George got out of bed, paddled across the cold, uncarpeted floor of the hallway and into the sewing room that faced the Amityville River in the back. He looked out the window into the darkness. He heard another knock. George strained his eyes to see. Where the hell's Harry? From somewhere over his head came a sharp crack. Instinctively, he ducked, then looked up at the ceiling. He heard a low squeak. The boys, Danny and Chris, were on the floor above him. One of them must have pushed a toy off his bed in his sleep. Barefoot and wearing only his pajama pants, George was shivering now. He looked back out the window. There, something was moving, down by the boathouse. He quickly lifted the window, and the freezing air hit him full blast. Hey, who's out there? Then Harry barked and moved. George, his eyes adjusting to the darkness, saw the dog spring to his feet. The shadow was close to Harry. Harry, go get him! Another rap sounded from the direction of the boathouse, and Harry spun around at the noise. He began running back and forth in his compound, barking furiously now, the lead holding him back. George slammed the window shut and ran back to his bedroom. Kathy had awoken. What's the matter? She turned on the lamp on her night table as George fumbled into his pants. George! Kathy saw his bearded face look up. It's all right, honey. I just wanted to take a look around out back. Harry's onto something near the boathouse. Probably a cat. I'd better quiet him down before he wakes the whole neighborhood. <clears throat> Not that they can hear anything anyway. <laughs> he slid into his loafers and was heading for his Old Navy Blue Marine parka lying on a chair. I'll be right back up. Go back to sleep. Kathy turned off the light. Okay, put your jacket on. The next morning, she wouldn't remember having awakened at all. When George came out the kitchen door, Harry was still barking at the moving shadow. There was a length of a two-by-four lumber lying against the swimming pool fence. George grabbed it and ran towards the boathouse. Then he saw the shadow move. His grip tightened on the heavy stick. Another loud rap. Damn! George saw it was at the door to the boathouse, open and swinging in the wind. I thought I'd locked that before. Harry barked again. Oh, shut up, Harry. Knock it off, he said. A half hour later, George was back in bed, still wide awake. As an ex-Marine not too many years out of service, he was fairly accustomed to emergency wake-up calls. It was taking him time to turn off his inner alarm system. Waiting for sleep to return, he considered that he had gotten himself into a second marriage and three children, a new house with a big mortgage. The taxes in Amityville were three times higher than in Deer Park. Did he really need the new speedboat? How the hell was he going to pay for all of this? The construction business was lousy on Long Island because of the tight mortgage money. 
and it didn't look like it would get better until the banks loosened up. If they aren't building houses and buying properties, who the hell needs a land surveyor? Kathy shifted in her sleep so that her arm fell across George's neck. Her face burrowed deep into his chest. He sniffed her hair. She certainly smelled clean, he thought. He liked that. And she kept her children the same way, spotless. Her kids, he asked. George's now. Whatever the trouble, she and the children were worth it. George looked up at the ceiling. Danny was a good boy, into everything. He could handle almost anything you gave him to do. They were getting closer now. Danny was now beginning to call his stepfather Dad, no more George. In a way, he was glad he never got to met Kathy's ex-husband. This is why he felt Danny was all his. Kathy said that Chris looked just like his father, had the same ways about him, the same dark, curly hair and eyes. Georgie would reprimand the boy for something and Chris's face would fall, and he looked up at him with those soulful eyes. The kid sure knew how to use them. He liked the way both boys looked after Missy. She was a little terror, but smart for a five-year-old. He'd never had any trouble with her from the first day he met Kathy. She was a daddy's girl, all right. Listens to Kathy and me. In fact, they all do. They're three nice kids I've got. It was after six before George finally fell into a deep sleep. Kathy woke up a few minutes later. She looked around the strange room trying to put her thoughts together. She was in the bedroom of her beautiful new home. Her husband was next to her, and her three children were in their own bedrooms. Wasn't that marvelous? God had been good to them. Kathy tried to slip easily from under George's arm. The poor man worked so hard yesterday, she thought, and today he's got more ahead of him. Let him sleep. She couldn't. She had too much to do in the kitchen, and she had better get started before the kids got up. Downstairs, she looked around at her new kitchen. It was still dark outside. She turned on the light. Boxes of her dishes, glasses, and pots were piled up all over the floor and sink. Chairs were still sitting on top of the dinette table, but she smiled to herself. The kitchen was going to be a happy room for her family. It might be just the place for her transcendental meditation, which George had been, George had been practicing for two years. Kathy won. He had been into TM ever since the breakup of his first marriage, when he had been attending sessions of group therapy. Out of that grew his interest in meditation. He had introduced Kathy to the subject, but now, with all the work and moving in, he had completely ignored his established pattern of going off by himself into a room and meditating for a few minutes each day. Kathy washed out her electric percolator, filled it, plugged it in, and lit her first cigarette of the day. Drinking coffee, Kathy sat at the table with a pad and pencil, making notes for herself on the jobs to be done around the house. Today was the 19th, a Friday. The kids would not go to their new school until after the Christmas holidays. Christmas! So There was so much still to do. Kathy sensed someone was staring at her. Startled, she looked up and over her shoulder. Her little daughter was standing in the doorway. Missy, you scared me half to death. What's the matter? What are you doing up so early? The little girl's eyes were half closed. Her blonde hair hung in her face. She looked around as if not understanding where she was. I want to go home, Mama. You are home, Missy. This is our new home. Come here. Missy shambled over to Kathy and climbed up on Mother's lap. The two ladies of the house sat there in their pleasant kitchen, Kathy rocking her daughter back to sleep. George came down after nine. By that time, the boys had already finished their breakfast and were outside, playing with Harry, investigating everything. 
Missy was asleep again in her room. Kathy looked at her husband, whose big frame filled the doorway. She saw he hadn't shaved below his jawbone and that his dark blonde hair and beard were still uncombed. That meant he hadn't showered. What's the matter? Aren't you going to work? George sat down wearily at the table. Nope, I still have to unload the truck and get it back out to Deer Park. We blew an extra 50 bucks by keeping it overnight. He looked around yawning and shivered. It's cold in here. Don't you have the heat on? The boys ran past the kitchen door yelling at Harry. George looked up. What's the matter with those two? Can't you keep them quiet, Kathy? She turned from the sink. Well, don't bark at me. You're their father, you know. You do it. George slapped his open palm down on the table. The sharp sound made Kathy jump. Right, he shouted. George opened the kitchen door and leaned out. Danny, Chris, and Harry, whoop, whooping it up, ran by again. Okay, the three of you, knock it off. Without waiting for their reaction, he slammed the door and stormed out of the kitchen. Kathy was speechless. This was the first time he had really lost his temper with the children. And for so little... He hadn't been in a bad mood the day before. George unloaded the U-Haul by himself, then drove it back to Deer Park with his motorcycle in the rear so that he could get back to Amityville. He never did shave or shower and did nothing the rest of the day but gripe about the lack of heat in the house and the noise the children were making in their playroom up on the third floor. He had been a bear all day, and by 11 o'clock that night when it was time to go to bed, Kathy was ready to crown him. She was exhausted from putting things away and trying to keep the kids away from George. She'd started cleaning the bathrooms in the morning, she figured, but that was it for the night. She was going to bed. George stayed down in the living room, feeding the log fire into the roaring fireplace, even though the thermostat read 75 degrees Fahrenheit. He couldn't seem to get warm. He must have checked the oil burner in the basement a dozen times during the day and evening. At 12, George finally dragged himself up to the room and fell asleep immediately. Again, at 3.15 in the morning, he was wide awake, sitting up in bed. There was something on his mind. The boathouse. Did he lock the door? He couldn't remember. He had to go out and check. It was closed and locked up. Over the next two days, the Lutz family began to go through their collective personality change. As George said, it was not a big thing, just little bits and pieces here and there. He didn't shave or shower, something he did religiously. Normally, George devoted as much time to his business as he could. Two years before, he had a second office in Shirley to handle contractors farther out on the South Shore. But now he simply called Syaset and gave gruff orders to his men, demanding they finish some surveying jobs over the weekend because he needed the money. As for arranging to move his office to his new basement setup, he never gave it another thought. Instead, George constantly complained the house was like a refrigerator, and he had to warm it up. Stuffing more and more logs into the fireplace occupied almost every moment, except for the times he would go out to the boathouse, stare into space, then go back into the house. Even now, he can't say what he was looking for when he went there. He just knew that somehow he was drawn to that place. It was practically a compulsion. The third night in the house, he again awoke at 3.15 a.m., worried about what might be going on out there. The children bothered him, too. Ever since the move, they seemed to have become brats, misbehaved monsters who wouldn't listen, unruly children who must be severely punished. When it came to the children, Kathy fell into the same mood. 
She was tense from her strained relationship with George and from the efforts of trying to put her house in shape before Christmas. On their fourth night in the house, she exploded together with her husband, beat Danny, Chris, and Missy with a strap and a large, heavy wooden spoon. The children had accidentally cracked a pane of glass in the playroom's half-moon window. Wow. Okay, so I know, I don't think, from what I understand, I don't think George ever leaves the house again. I don't think George ever leaves the house from After the time this. from right. the time that he moved in basically because he said he didn't want to go to work he and I think that his you know the the not shaving the not keeping himself tidy I think that continues and the he anger very reclused yeah and the anger definitely gets worse so we're going to keep going so now December 22nd this is the fifth night in the house Early Monday morning, it was bitter cold in Amityville. The town is right on the Atlantic side of Long Island, and the sea wind blew in like a nor'easter. For those of you that don't know, that is a northern snowstorm, because Kenny didn't know that for a while. No, I had no idea what a nor'easter was. (laughs) The The thermometer hovered at 8 degrees, and media weathermen were forecasting for a white Christmas. Inside 112 Ocean Avenue, Danny, Chris, and Missy Lutz were up in the playroom, slightly subdued from the whipping the night before. George had still not gone to his office and was sitting in the living room, adding more logs to a blazing fire. Kathy was writing at her dinette table in the kitchen nook. As she worked over a list of things to buy for Christmas, her concentration wandered. She was upset about having hit the children, particularly about the way George and she had gone about it. There were many gifts the Lutz family still hadn't bought, and Kathy knew she had to go out and get them. But since they had moved in, she never had any desire to leave the house. She had just written down her Aunt Teresa's name when Kathy froze, pencil in midair. Something had come up from behind and embraced her. Then it took her hand and gave it a pat. The touch was reassuring and had an inner strength to it. Kathy was startled but not frightened. It was like the touch of a mother giving comfort to her daughter. Kathy had the impression of a woman's soft hand resting on her own. Mommy, come up here quick. It was Chris calling from the third floor hallway. Kathy looked up. The spell was broken. The touch was gone. She ran upstairs to her children. They were in their bathroom looking into the toilet. Kathy saw the inside of the bowl was absolutely black as though someone had painted it from the bottom edge to just below the rim. She pushed the handle, flushing clear water against the sides. The black remained. Kathy grabbed toilet paper and tried vainly to rub off the discoloration. I don't believe it. I just scrubbed this yesterday with Clorox. She turned accusingly to the children. Did you throw any paint in here? Oh no, Mama, all three chorused. Kathy was fit to be tied. The incident in the breakfast nook was forgotten. She looked into the sink and bathtub, but they were still gleaming from her scouring. She turned on the faucets, nothing but clear clear water running. Once more, she flushed the toilet, not really expecting the horrible black color to disappear. She bent down and looked around the base to see if anything was leaking to the inside of the bowl. Finally, she turned to Danny. Get the Clorox from my bathroom. It's in the little closet under the sink. Missy started to go. Missy, you stay here. Let Danny get it. The boy left the bathroom. And bring the scrub brush too, Kathy called after him. 
Chris searched his mother's face, his eyes watering. I didn't do it. Please don't hit me again. Kathy looked at him, thinking of the terrible night before. No, baby, it wasn't your fault. Something's happened to the water, I think. Maybe some oil backed up in the line. Didn't you notice it before? I had to go. I saw it first, crowed Missy. Uh-huh. Well, let's see what the Clorox does before I call your father. And he, Mama, Mama, the cry came from down the hall. Kathy leaned out the bathroom doorway. What is it, Danny? I said it's under the sink. No, Mama, I found it. But the black's in your toilet, too. And it stinks in here. Kathy's bathroom was at the far end of her bedroom. Danny was standing outside the bedroom, holding his nose, when Kathy and the two other children came running down. As soon as Kathy stepped into the bedroom, the odor hit her, a Swedish perfume smell. She stopped, sniffed, and frowned. What the hell is that? That isn't my cologne. But when she entered her bedroom, she was struck by a completely different odor, an overpowering stench. Kathy gagged and started to cough, but before she ran, caught a glimpse of her toilet bowl. It was totally black inside. The children scrambled out of her way as she headed down the stairs. George! What do you want? I'm busy. Kathy burst into the living room and ran over to where George was crouched by the fireplace. You'd better come and look. There's something in our bathroom that smells like a dead rat, and the toilet's all black. She grabbed his hand and tugged him out of the room. The other bathroom t toilet bowl on the second floor was also black inside, as George discovered, but it had no smell. He sniffed the perfume in his room. What the hell's that? He began to open the windows on the second floor. First, let's get the smell out of here. He lifted the windows in his and Kathy's bedroom and ran, and they ran across the hall to the other bedrooms. Then he heard Kathy's voice. George, look at this. The fourth bedroom on the second floor, now Kathy's sewing room, has two windows. One, which looks out at the boathouse and the Amityville River, was the window George had opened that first night when he had awakened at 3.15. The other faces the neighboring house to the right of 112 Ocean Avenue. On this window, clinging to the inside of the panes, were literally hundreds of buzzing flies. Jesus, will you look at that? House flies now? Maybe they're attracted by the smell, Kathy volunteered. Yeah, but not at this time of years. Flies don't live that long and not in this weather. And why are there why are they only on this window? George looked around the room, trying to see where the insects had come from. There was a closet in one corner. He opened the door and peered in, looking for cracks for anything that would make sense. If this closet wall was up against the bathroom, they might have lived in the warmth. But this wall's against the outside. George put his hand against the plaster. It's cold in here. I don't see any way they could have survived. After shooing his family out into the hall, George shut the door of, to the sewing room. He opened the other window overlooking the boathouse, then took some of the newspapers and chased out as many flies as he could. He killed those that remained, then he closed the window. By then, it was freezing on the second floor, but at least the sweet perfume odor was gone. The bathroom stench had also diminished. This didn't help George in his efforts to warm his house. Though no one else was complaining, he checked the oil heating system in the basement. It was working fine. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the thermostat just off the living room read 80 degrees, but George couldn't feel the heat. Kathy had scrubbed the toilet bowls again with Clorox, Fantastic, and Lysol. The cleaners helped somewhat, but a good deal of the black remained, stained deep into the porcelain. Worst of all was the toilet in the second bathroom next to the sewing room. The outdoor temperature had risen to 20 degrees, and the children were out of the house playing with Harry. 
Kathy warned them to keep away from the boathouse and bulkhead area, saying it was too dangerous for them to play there without someone to watch them. George had brought in some more logs from the cord stacked in the garage and was sitting in the kitchen with Kathy. They began to argue violently about who should go out and buy Christmas gifts. Why can't you at least pick up the perfume for your mother, asked George. I've got to get this place in order, Kathy erupted. I don't see you doing anything but harping. After a few minutes, the squabble petered out. Kathy was about to mention the eerie thing that happened to her in the nook that morning when the front door when the front doorbell rang. A man who looked to be anywhere from 35 to 45 because of his receding hairline was standing there with a hesitant smile on his face and a six-pack of beer in his hands. His features were coarse and his nose was red from the cold. Everybody wants to come over to welcome you to the neighborhood. You don't mind, do you? The fellow wore a three-quarter length wool car coat, corduroy pants, and construction boots. It struck George that he didn't look like a neighbor who would own one of the large homes in the area. Before they even moved to Amityville, George and Kathy had considered the idea of having an open house, but once in the new house, they had never brought up the subject again. George nodded to the one-man welcoming committee. No, we don't mind at all. If they don't mind sitting on cardboard boxes, bring them all. George took him into the kitchen and introduced Kathy. The man stood there, repeated his speech to her. Kathy nodded. He continued telling the Lutzes that he kept his boat at another neighbor's boathouse several doors down on Ocean Avenue. The man held on to the six-pack and finally said, I brought it, I'll take it with me, and left. George and Kathy never found out his name. They never saw him again. That night when they went to bed, George made his usual check of all the doors and windows, latching and locking inside and out. So when he woke once more at 3.15 in the morning and gave in the urge to look downstairs, he was stunned to find the 250-pound wooden front door wrenched wide open, hanging from one hinge. All right, so the stains in the toilet are kind of weird because it's right. really hard to stain porcelain. Right, that's what I was thinking. Like, yeah, and well, they should realize. Well, and what they're probably re- thinking is, well, we're just arguing is because you know it's a lot of change in our lives and we're stressed out and blah blah blah. blah. But I mean, I mean that drastic of a mood swing though. That drastic of a mood a mood swing, and also so like to get so angry over something so little, Small, right? At kids who, mind you, are five, seven, and nine, like. Yeah. Like, these kids are just kids. Yeah. What they're doing, from what I'm understanding, is just kid shit. Right. Like. All right. Now we are on December 23rd. So, and we're this is going to be the last day that we're going to read. So this will be the end of part one after this chapter. And then part two, we're going to read, try to read from Christmas Eve to G- January 1st, to New Year's. So we get those five, six days that week. Right. So. Okay. December 23rd. Kathy awoke to the noise of George wrestling with the wrecked front door. When she felt the chill in the house, she threw on a robe and ran downstairs to see her husband, trying to force the heavy wooden slab back into its frame. What happened? I don't know, George answered, finally forcing the door closed. This thing was wide open, hanging on one hinge. Here, look at this. He pointed at the brass lock plate. The doorknob was twisted completely off-center. The metal facing was bent back as though someone had tried to pry it open with a tool. But from the inside, someone was trying to get out of the house, not in. 
I don't understand what's going on around here, George muttered more to himself than Kathy. I know I locked this before I went upstairs. To open the door from in here, all you had to do was turn the lock. Is it the same way outside, Kathy asked? No, there's nothing wrong with the knob on the outside. Somebody need an awful lot of strength to pull away a door this heavy and tear it off one of the hinges. Maybe it was the wind, George, Kathy offered, hopefully. Fucking hopefully. People, fucking white people. <laughs> it's the wind. Stop. It seems to get pretty strong out there, you know. There's no wind in here, much less a tornado. Something or somebody had to do this. The Lutzes looked at one another. Kathy was the first to react. The kids! She turned and ran up the stairs to the second floor and into Missy's, Missy's bedroom. A small light in the shape of Yogi Bear was plugged into the wall near the bottom of the light little girl's bed. In its feeble glow, Kathy glimpsed the form of Missy lying on her stomach. Missy, Kathy whispered, leaning over the bed. Missy whimpered, then turned over onto her back. Kathy let out a sigh of relief, and she tucked the covers up under her daughter's chin. The cold air that had come in while the front door was open had made even this room very chilly. She kissed Missy on the forehead and silently slipped out of the room, heading for the third floor. Danny and Chris were sleeping soundly. Both were on their stomachs. Later when I thought about it, Kathy says, that was the first time I could ever remember the children sleeping in that position, particularly all three on their stomachs, at the same time. I even remember I was almost going to say something to George that it was kind of strange. In the morning, the cold spell that gripped Amityville was still unbroken. It was cloudy, and the radio kept promising snow for Christmas. In the hallway of the Lutz home, the thermostat still read a steady 80 degrees. But George was back in the living room, stoking the fire to a roaring blaze. He told Kathy he just couldn't shake the chill from his bones, and he didn't understand why she and the children didn't feel that way, too. The job of replacing the doorknob and lock assembly on the front door was too complex for even a handy individual like George. The local locksmith arrived about 12. As he'd promised, he'd made a long, slow survey of the damage inside the house and then gave George a peculiar look, but offered no explanation as to how something like this could have possibly happened. He finished the job quickly and quietly. Upon leaving, his one comment was that the DeFeos had called him a couple of years before. They were having trouble with the lock on the boathouse door. He had been called to change the lock assembly because once the door was closed from the inside, it would somehow jam, and whoever was in the boathouse couldn't get out. George wanted to say more about the boathouse, but when Kathy looked at him, he held back. They didn't want the news spreading around Amityville that again, there was something funny going on at 112 Ocean Ave. By two in the afternoon, the weather had begun to warm. A slight drizzle was enough to keep the children in the house. George still hadn't gone to work and was in constant transit between the living room and the basement, adding logs, checking the oil burner. Danny and Chris were up in their third floor playroom, noisily banging their toys around. Kathy was back at her cleaning chores, putting shelf paper in the closets. She had worked her way almost to her own bedroom on the second floor when she looked into Missy's room. The little girl was sitting in her diminutive rocking chair, humming to herself as she stared out the window that looked towards the boathouse. Kathy was about to speak to her daughter when the phone rang. She picked up the extension in her own bedroom. It was her mother, saying that she would be over the next day. 
Christmas Eve, and that Kathy's brother Jimmy would bring them a Christmas tree as a housewarming gift. Kathy said how relieved she was that at least the tree would be taken care of, since she and George had been unable to rouse themselves to do any shopping at all. Then out of the corner of her eye, Kathy saw Missy leave her room and enter the sewing room. Kathy was only half listening to what her mother was saying. What could Missy possibly want in there? Where all the flies had been the day before. She could hear her five-year-old daughter humming, moving about some still unopened cardboard boxes. Kathy was about to cut her mother short when she saw Missy come back out of the sewing room. When the child stepped into the hallway and returned to her own bedroom, she stopped her humming. Puzzled by her daughter's behavior, Kathy, Kathy wound up a conversation with her mother, again thanking her for the tree. She hung up, walked silently towards Missy's room, and stood in the doorway. Missy was back in her rocking chair, staring out the same window and humming again, a tune that didn't sound quite familiar. Kathy was about to speak when Missy stopped humming and without turning her head said, Mama, do angels talk? Kathy stared at her daughter. This little girl had known she was there. But before Kathy could step into the room, she was startled by a loud crash overhead. The boys were upstairs. Fearful, she raced up the stairs to the playroom. Danny and Chris were rolling on the floor, locked in each other's arms, punching and kicking at each other. What's going on here? Kathy screamed. Danny, Chris, you stop this right now, you hear? She tried to pull them apart, but each was still trying to get at each other. Their eyes were blazing with hate. Chris was crying in his anger. It was the first time ever that the two brothers had gotten into a fight. She slapped each boy in the face, hard, and demanded to know what had started the nonsense. Danny started it, Chris sniffled. Liar, Chris, you started it, Danny scowled. Started what? What are you fighting about? Kathy demanded, her voice rising. There was no answer from either boy. Both suddenly withdrew from their mother. Whatever happened, Kathy sensed it was their affair, not hers. Then her patience snapped. What is going on around here? First, it's Missy with her angels, and now you two idiots trying to kill each other? Well, I've had it. We'll just see what your father has to say about all this. You're both going to get it later, but right now, I don't want to hear another peep out of either of you. You hear me? Not another sound. Shaking, Kathy returned downstairs to her shelving. Cool down, she told herself, as she passed Missy's room again. The little girl was humming the same strange tune to herself. Kathy wanted to go in, but then thought better of it, and continued on into her bedroom. She talked to George later, when she had a chance to be calmer about the whole affair. Kathy picked up a roll of shelf paper and opened the door to the walk-in closet. Immediately, a sour smell struck her nostrils. Oh, God! What is that? She pulled the light chain hanging from the closet ceiling and looked around the small room. It was empty except for one thing. On the very first day the Lutz had moved in, she had hung a crucifix on the inner wall facing the closet door, just as she had done when they lived in Deer Park. A friend had originally given her the crucifix as a wedding present. Made of silver, it was a beautiful piece about 12 inches long and had been blessed a long time before. As Kathy looked at it now, her eyes widened in horror. She began to gag at the sour smell, but couldn't retreat from the sight of the crucifix. Now was hanging upside down. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Satan. (laughs) 
So, first of all, <clears throat> I want to go back to the door. The door was hanging on one hinge. So, like, what does that mean? Like, it sounds to me like the door was broken. Like, somebody broke the door. Yeah, but it was from the inside. So, when they describe with how the year this house was built, the locking system in it probably had a very large brass or steel plate on the front of it. Right. And that was all mangled. Right. Somebody ripped the door knob and bent it. Right. Which is very hard considering that they're, like, hardened steel. Right. And then the only way to really, like, rip hinges off is to either put all of your weight when the door is open, catty-cornered, mm -hmm. or to physically pick the door up and rip the hinges off. So that sounds like what might have happened. Yeah, it was somebody was trying to get out, and as they were trying to get the knob, they were bending it, trying to force the door open for some reason, and then ripped probably the two bottom hinges off. If there's three. Now, sometimes there's only two hinges on doors, and they could have ripped the bottom one off. But... My first thought was, if that happened, why do you go straight to blaming a five, seven, and nine-year-old? I don't think the three of them combined would have that strength. Probably not. They're just trying to rationalize it. Well, if we were parents and it's like, well, you didn't do it and I didn't do it, who else in this house could do it? Right. Well, the only other living things in here are the kids, and it was from the inside. And as the locksmith said, hey, man, you know, the DeFeos, I was here and, you know, mm -hmm. they had me do the boathouse because once you walked in, you were locked in permanently. Wow. And they were like, okay, we just bought this house. Everybody told us not to. And I love that he started to go tell him. And Kathy was like, shut up. Yeah, be quiet. Don't we say have, anything. We have to save the face. We already, gonna... people already think we're crazy for buying this house. Yeah. And now they're going to think, oh, well, they're just doing the same thing that the DeFeos did. Yeah, they're going to think they that it's all the just... attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, and that's all it's going to be. And it's not true. Right. Because their situation is completely different. Right. But I've never understood the crucifix, the, the crucifix is being upside down. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a thing in like a bunch of the Conjuring movies and stuff like well, that Well, it's too. in like everything. And I, I understand that it's to show disrespect, but it doesn't work. No. Because when... Not, not as crucifix, it's crosses in general too. Oh like, Lord, who was it? Was it Paul that was crucified? Peter. Excuse Peter. me. St. Peter. He was crucified upside down because he said he did his, he did not deserve or he was not worthy to be crucified the same way that Jesus Christ was. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to be crucified upside down. It's a respect thing. So when you, when I see or hear, you know, the cross moved and it was upside down, I'm like, that's not really saying, you know. That's not like a bad thing. Yeah, it's not saying, you know, ha ha ha, you know. Screw Christianity, screw Jesus, you know, we're demons, blah, 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 blah. For me, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, you're showing respect that you're not worthy. Okay, cool. Well, they're not, though. Right, but why would you do it upside down? That's why I never remember, like, the Conjuring movie. Like, that's so scary, the cross being upside down. Right. No, the cross lighting on fire. Yeah. Being burned or it exploding or just falling off the wall is creepy enough. It going upside down is not. Yeah. It's more edgy than anything. <laughs> Some edgelord stuff. Oh, my gosh. Um, and now it's a symbol of, you know, Satan and demons and yeah. bad spirits and shit like that. It's just because so many movies have depicted it that way. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is why would you hang a crucifix in your closet? I don't know. We always have... We have ours... Like, so when he... We ha he has a crucifix. He has a Catholic 
crucifix, the last rites crucifix, and we always hang it like in in the our entryway of the door. Yeah, and in our Carnarvon house, it was above the door on the inside of the house, and we're gonna do the same thing when we move, and like you had it in here, you had it in above your bedroom door, right? Because you, like, al- you, you always put always, it at the entryway. You always put it in the entryway, right? So I don't understand the closet thing. That's really weird. I don't know. I have heard stories like. People put Bibles in closets. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. That's It's really interesting to me because I, I've always had it hung above. Like an entryway. Yeah, my father always taught me that. You put crosses above the entryway into any house. Yeah, well, that's the same the same concept of you put salt at doorways. Yeah, it's the barrier, the cleansing yeah. and stuff like that, right? That's weird. why That's why all salesmen are vampires because you have to invite them into your house. Stop. <laughs> Because vampires can't enter a domain until they're invited. Oh, my gosh. Just saying. Okay. Just saying. So, we're going to stop. Um, this is part one. We're probably going to have to make it into four parts. That's how if, I had originally. If not, if not more. We only made it to two. We read five chapters. It might be more. It might be we'll more. I don't know. We'll find out. We might do an episode a little bit longer one time. Maybe the last one will do a little bit right. longer. So, that way it is only like three or four parts. But we'll see. Um, so next time we're going to try and get through Christmas Eve to New Year's Day. So we'll stop on New Year's Day. We'll stop on January 1st. Yep. Um, we'll try to get that far. And, um, also, like Cite I said. all our sources, do all that stuff. I don't want to get in any trouble for reading a book on a podcast. And from what we, um, have looked up, it seems like this book is public domain. Right. Meaning that we can read it anywhere. We can do whatever we want with this book. Um, I'm hoping that's the case. Either way, I'm going to put a link on a link to this book from Amazon where I personally bought it. And um, I'm also going to cite this source. I'm going to put it in Citation Machine and cite this book entire in its entirety in every part that we do of this ep- this, uh, this story. Because I do not want to get in trouble by Jay Anson. And if it comes down to it... And well, someone... it's, it's more so the publisher because Jay Anson's dead. Oh, okay. So I don't... Well, is he really? Yeah. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. He died in, oh, it was 80-something. Okay, so, well, this is a gallery, so gallery books. I don't want to get in trouble by gallery books. Yeah, he passed away in the 80s, I think. Don't quote me on that. He was born in, like, the 20s, I think. I don't know. Well, this book was originally written. He died in 1980. He was born in 1921. Wow. So this book. Oh, he died three years after he wrote this book. Wow. Um, so this book is copyrighted by Jay Anson, George Lee Lutz, and Kathleen Lutz. Uh, so, And it was also renewed, copyrighted by all three of them again. So, and I, I'm just going to read this to save face for me. It says, all rights reserved, including the right to reproduce this book or portions thereof in any form whatsoever, which we're not reproducing it. We're just reading it to you guys. And reviewing it kind of and discussing it and talking right. about it. Right. Um, and so, and it is a gallery books paperback edition from December, 2019. This is the book that we're reading is a reprint of the original book, but the book, the original book, I will, I will cite both of them. This one, the, the reprint and the original one that Jay Anson wrote to begin with. So if you see this and it's still up, great. Yeah. Good. If not, somebody got angry. Yeah. And Again, not like we're charging anybody to read the or to to listen to us. Or no, and like I'm that. also not making. Um, 
I'm not making money off of this podcast yet, so it doesn't matter. Like, but also the names and some identifying details of several individuals mentioned in this book have been changed to protect their privacy. So there are some things that have been changed in this book, obviously. Probably like they obviously kept the Lutz last name, but I bet his business got changed. Probably so. The pastor or the priest definitely probably got changed. No, uh, Father Mancuso. Father Mancuso. Really? Okay, so they kept I him. believe is the real priest. Probably any of the neighbors, probably the kids' names were probably mm, changed. I don't know. You don't think so? I don't think so. I think those were the kids' names. Interesting. Let me see. They probably changed a whole lot just for people's privacy that we that that were that are in the book. Right. Like people that they had talked to, stuff like that. So the like, neighbors, probably the realtor, stuff like that. Mhm. So. Um I wanted to see yeah, no, because the address is correct. Um, well, yeah, obviously. Uh, let's see. George and Kathy Lutz, that's their name. Nope, that's their names. Daniel, yeah, so it's probably, Christopher, and Melissa. So it's probably everybody outside. And the dog family. is a Malamute Labrador mix, Harry. So it's probably like the realtor, his business, um, stuff like that. Yeah, because yeah, Father Mancuso, Father Mancuso was a lawyer, judge of the Catholic Court. Yeah, he's a real, he's real. But also in this Wikipedia listing, it doesn't say the real estate broker's name, so they could have changed her name because her name was like Emily or something in the book. Yeah, they, so probably, they probably changed, changed her name and the real the realty company that she was using. Yeah, and his stuff surveying like that. company was probably not there. Yeah. Um, that makes so, sense. And then when we go further in, you know, like the neighbors right. that get involved. But and... they did live in Deer Park previously. Like all of the like, all of the stuff is really true, but I think they just changed specific names so that people don't people right. aren't because some of those people some of those neighbors probably still live there or the families like passed down, they probably still live there and they probably just don't want to be bothered. It's for sale again, by the way. How much is it? One point seven, I think. What? You want to talk about inflation? <laughs> I'll give you eighty grand for it. <laughs> what is it? One eighty-two. One twelve. Oh my god. One twelve Ocean Avenue. I'll give you. A, I'll give you eighty thousand for it. <laughs> I don't want to live in New York though. <laughs> Even though I think it's like kind of in the country. Like, nope. They dropped the listing. Oh no. One point four six million. What? They redid the entire inside of the house. I bet they did. Well, they probably have had to over the last it was listed for 1.7 my god they're not gonna sell it you know i wouldn't buy it for that i'd buy it for 80 (laughs) i might buy it for 80 80. i'm like you drop it down to 80,000 even 100,000 i got you i'll buy it i won't live in it but i'll buy it (laughs) just to be like i own it all right well that's I wouldn't. Part one, everybody. I wouldn't live in it specifically because we have animals, and I I'm not entirely sure, but I do think something happens to the dog. So yeah, they always kill the animals. First. Yeah, and cats are definitely more susceptible to that. And Eli would probably have a heart attack. He old man. So hell, I don't even think he would survive a move from here to New York. Hell, no, he wouldn't. He's He'd 12. be so cranky. All right, well, that's oh, part one, That's everybody. part one. So next week we'll delve into part two, which we'll do Christmas Eve through New Year's Day. Yep, we'll just keep going with it until somebody stops us. Yeah, and <laughs> if nobody stops us, then hey. See but I'm going to go through all the right channels and just make sure that everything is cited the way it needs to be cited, and hopefully we don't get in any trouble. And hopefully you guys enjoy it. 
So going to send it. But I have heard, I did read some um, reviews about this book on Amazon, and it said that this book has way more information than some people have ever heard of. There's more stuff in here. So hopefully you guys learned some stuff. I mean, right. I know we already have, so. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll so see anyways, you next time. We'll see you next time with part two. Later. Bye. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories. Don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there, as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And, and we, we hope, hope you were terrified. terrified.